Let's recap the B&B principle. The first B stands for birthday and the second for bleach. The principle of birthday states that wherever you go on planet Earth, you will never in your life bump into somebody who does not have a birthday. What birthdays do is inform people that before this day they did not exist. Having not existed, you couldn't have possibly created yourself. Having not created yourself, you couldn't have possibly know on your own what to do with a life you never created. Therefore, B. The second B stands for bleach and is representative of the principle that whatever existed before you arrived on planet Earth will not change its reality just to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes, thoughts and hopes, like bleach. By the time you arrived on planet Earth, bleach was not a friendly drink. Therefore, even if you beg, plead, cajole, threaten, bribe, explain logically to the bleach that it's anyway wet in a bottle and you're on the point of dehydration, it will not become a friendly drink for you for the simple reason that it is not motivated to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes and hope since it does not need you as evidenced by the fact that by the time you arrived on planet Earth it was here before you. It is therefore independent of you. It therefore will not accommodate you. If you want to remain safe from bleach, you are dependent on the people who were here before your birthday, who are in the know, who will share with you the rules of bleach so that you can accommodate those laws. So that all of life is a massive attempt to discover the rules of life from those in the know who were here before us so that we can accommodate those rules so that we remain safe and happy. Okay, um, I entitled this workshop you couldn't have made it happen. You could not have made it happen. And it refers to your life. Like your life's on a schedule. And you couldn't have organized that. So where do we come in from a B&B perspective? Where are we coming in uh, with the fact that you couldn't have made your life happen? Just very, very simply as a logical extension. Since you have a birthday, you have no way of controlling who is coming into your life the next minute. Just like you couldn't create yourself, you also can't create the next moment. You certainly can't orchestrate who should arrive the next moment in your life to achieve what. Because human beings that never existed have no way of organizing their lives and no way of creating the next minute's reality. No way. I mean, anybody who's tried to organize something will tell you that as hard as you work, anything can happen. And that's because we are, you know, pathetic, pathetically little in control of our lives for the simple reason that we have birthdays. Beings that never used to exist have no way of creating the next moment or uh, any, anybody, anything, any phenomenon that's happening in that moment. So since you couldn't have made it happen, who did make it happen? Well, the same creator who gave you a birthday, he made your next moment and he orchestrated and organized who's going to show up in your life in the next minute, the next second to achieve something that your soul needs to achieve. So basically, I come to tell you the great good news that your life is out of your control. So I'm sure that's very exciting. And, um, and we're here to dive right into it. So what um, proof do we have? So in other words, this is a kind of um, Jewish understanding of the law of attraction. Do we believe in the law of attraction? Up to a certain extent, yeah. That which has to happen to you is going to get attracted to you. Yeah, definitely. And who's going to make, uh, or who's going to splice together and who's going to put the, uh, you know, the Wi-Fi between you and what has to happen? You're the same creator who knows exactly what's what has to happen to your soul and what's on your schedule. Law of Attraction says that uh, things and people get attracted to each other, that there's some kind of invisible... Up to a certain extent, the Gemara says poverty goes to poverty. The Gemara says, if it's, yeah, I mean, if the person muscle is to be poor, then yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, up to a certain extent. But I assure you, whoever, whoever is poor in other areas of life, he probably has very good muzzle. He probably has good things going for him. Maybe they're not so apparent, but in his soul experience, who knows what he's achieving? So maybe he has good luck. Maybe it sounds like bad luck, but maybe he has good luck. 
Some people's bad luck is that they fall into money, says the Chavit Now they Now they have an opportunity to have messed up lives. They indulge, they get distracted, they don't, they're not humble, they don't appreciate it, they don't respend it the way Hashem wanted. The biggest disaster, they had money. When they get to heaven, their biggest complaint will be that they had too much money. So, um, in the Pasuk says, Hashem finished completed the heavens and the earth. So if he completed it, it means it's absolutely perfect with you in it. And he completed it for you, for you to use it for your completion. So it means whatever's going on in your life is absolutely perfect for you right now, this minute. You're the right person, the right time, in the right place, always. There's an um, interesting Arizal that um, discusses that when Cain killed Hevel, Hashem was so angry that he said to him, because you did this, Yukom Shivasayim, Yud Kif Mem, Yukom, you will be avenged, Miloshana Koma, a vengeance. You will be avenged sevenfold. Seven, sevenfold means like basically he's going to have seven opportunities to try and right the wrong. So that result says that when Hashem created the world, Melech Bamishpat Yamit Oretz, it's a Pasuk Mishle. When Hashem created the world, he founded it on justice. Um, justice means that certain laws are just built into learn into the into life. And one of them is that if somebody kills somebody, a murderer, then in the next lifetime, in a reincarnated life, then the victim must kill back the murderer, the perpetrator. He must. Hashem has zero tolerance for murder. And if somebody was killed by someone in another lifetime, the victim will pay back whoever murdered him, will become his murderer. That's the way Hashem founded the world. So, Cain killed Hevel. So, Hevel must kill back Cain. So, yeah. Yeah, because there's a cheshbon why he was victimized. Nothing's, nothing happened just like that. No, one time. One time's enough. Doesn't go on for as good period, but one time's enough to, to, to finish up. So, but Hashem has so zero tolerance for murder that he said a murderer has to come down three times. Three different golem, three different why. When Hashem created the soul, it's a medrash in Tanchoma, uh, Pashas Penchas, other places also, that the soul is, cre- is constructed of five levels of consciousness, five layers in ascending order. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chai, Yechida. I'll give you a quick little one-minute crash course on the structure of the soul. The nefesh is responsible for our physical life, and we experience it through our five physical senses. And it lives temporarily. The soul in and of itself is really a spiritual entity. But in order for it to achieve its purpose in this world, for a short temporary life, has to be in a physical body. Try its luck. And it, the first three lower levels of the soul, Nefesh, Ruch, and Shammah, they come down in a physical body for a temporary time until um, a person dies and then he can get his reward for having worked so hard. So the Nefesh lives in the blood. We say, which is why us Jews do not eat the blood of an animal, because we don't want to become animalistic. Because the, the soul-like instincts, predatory instincts of the animal lives in his blood, so we don't want to become like that. So we don't eat the blood of animals that have kosher meat. So it's a nefesh. The ruach, is at a high level, is responsible for a person's emotional life. And he lives in the heart. So if some people get very, if a person can get very upset, could get a heart attack and die. If a person very happy also, or out of the blue, unexpected good news, he can also suffer emotional, you know, uh, heavy weight on the heart. And um, so that's the ruach of a person, it's a higher level of consciousness. What makes one level higher than the other one is that you wouldn't exchange one for another. In other words, nobody would say... Um, for a very pleasant emotional experience, like the joy of of having a kid, nobody would say, 
if I give you a hundred thousand dollars, can I have you? Can I buy your kid from you? It's non-negotiable. It's no transaction over there. But that's what makes it the high level. So nefesh ruah, and then the neshama is responsible for the intellectual part of a person, where a person moralizes and philosophizes and, and thinks of something is ethical and moral and right and, and stuff like that. So that's called the neshama. Neshama sheba moichi lives in the brain. So, um, you know, it's like the challenges of the brain. When the brain, brain is, is challenged physically, it's, it has an overall effect. So, nefesh, ruach, neshama, and the other two parts that don't come down in the body, we, we communicate with our high levels of experience by deep, elevating, uplifting experience called the chaya and the yechida. So, Hashem said about Kayin that his nefesh, ruach, neshama are going to have to come down three separate people. So, his nefesh came down, yukom is yud, kef, yud kof, and the Yud stands for Yisroi, says Arizal, my Shabbinus father-in-law. Koirach, Kuf stands for Koirach, and Mem stands for Mitri. Hevel got reincarnated in my Shabbinu. And Kayin's Nefesh, lowest level of Kayin, got reincarnated in a Mitri. Now, one fine day, this looks like such an innocent daily episode, that nothing unusual looks there's nothing identifiably unusual to the average onlooker. Mashrabenu sees what he saw every day in Paris Palace. He's 80 years old. He sees out the window. He sees his fellow brothers being tortured and overworking, and he can't handle it. And he's going out to help them. And he sees the first thing that meets his eye is a mystery. Ish Mitri Makes beating is beating a Jew, beating a Jew to a pulp. He turned all over and he saw nobody's looking, and he, with a shame and a forish, he killed him. Looks like a very normal scene. I mean, that's, I imagine that's what mysteries did every day. I mean, what did Nazis do every day? Nothing unusual about the scene. But that result says that that Mitri was the reincarnated nefesh of Cain, and now Hevel, newly revised edition, Moshe Rabbeinu, gets to kill his perpetrator, and he killed him back. So that was a ticken on that level. Now, Koirach had no idea under the sun, he had no logical explanation for his totally incomprehensible totally intense, outlandish, far-fetched, inappropriate hatred of his first cousin, Moshe Rabbeinu. has no idea understand why he hates his first cousin so much, but he is certainly wreaking havoc and got 250 really Hoshiba people on his side. What a tragedy. Meanwhile, he's the reincarnated Ruach of... Cain, hating Brother Hevel, jealous of Brother Hevel all over again, my Shabbinu. But because he lacked self-awareness and didn't muster up all his energy to really get hold of his jealousy once for all and grasp it by its, by its horn and see it for its corrupt nature and deal with it, he fell right into the pit, Literally. <laughs> and then you've got Yisroi. Yisroi was Mashabinu's father-in-law. He was the reincarnated philosophical, theological, intelligent, intellectual, ethical side of Cain. And that's why he was such an enormous um, truth seeker. He was desperate to find the truth. He served every Avedizor under the sun and came to the conclusion that you know, that there's only one God, that monotheism is the one and only truth, and ultimately Judaism is the one and only truth. And because he mustered all his courage and put in all his strength to get to the truth, sure it wasn't easy having a, a, a the reincarnated brain of kind couldn't have been fun. I wouldn't like to have that.
And then, but he really, really, he's really worked hard and he made it. And as a reward, he became the father-in-law of his ex-brother. Not bad. And now Rizal says that one of the reasons why Cain killed Hevel, he hated him so much, was because Hevel was born with a, a twin sister who Cain wanted to marry. And Cain and, and Hevel didn't, was protective of his twin sister. He didn't, he didn't like something about his brother, didn't feel was safe, I guess, for good reason. And he protected him and he said, no, you can't marry her. So he killed him, thinking, okay, great, now she'll be free for me. And as a reward that he put himself out to protect his twin sister, in the next life he gets to marry her, and was Sepoira Bas Yisro. So Masharbenu marries Sepoira. So he gets to marry, so in there everything gets sorted out nicely. All fixed up, new revised edition, reconstructed. Hevel is Masha Benu. He married Sepora Bas Yisroi. And that was, his that was in his first life. That was his twin sister. So now he gets to marry her. What? Why, sh why should Yisroi be called? It was the Nefesh. The Nefesh part of... The Nefesh part did the criminal acts. The Nefesh part gets killed. That's what Hashem ruled. Hashem ruled that the nefesh is the one that does the murdering has to be killed back, not the other two parts. A ruach and a neshama and a chayachida are by nature indestructible. They're eternal. Only the nefesh is the physical part of a person gets uh, gets to die. The rest is all part of Hashem. It's it's etern of eternal nature. In other words, when a person dies, he still feels what he felt in this world. That's basically the point. The point is that you better get your emotions in order because you ain't got what to do with them after you're done. They ain't going no place. So there's no closure with Korach. What happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Korach, unfortunately, he, as a matter of fact, Hashem was so angry at the earth by having sucked in Hevel so that it gave Cain the illusion that he can cover up his crime that when Hashem asked him, where is your brother? And he said, Hashem, am I my brother's keeper? Because the earth had sucked up. So Hashem said to the earth, now you're going to have to make it up by Korach and you have to suck in Korach. That's why the earth opened up. Hashem said to Cain, you're even more cursed than the earth that opened its mouth. So even the earth Got to think, Koirach, unfortunately, is still jumping up and down as I'm talking to you. It's not having fun, I can guarantee you that. It's quite hot in there, they say. He's still screaming, Moshe Emes for Sarasa Emes, meaning his closure will only be Batrias Amesim. And uh, this is, Arizal was Megala that he's getting up to Chias Amesim. Until Arizal, we thought that he's done. Because the reason was Megala that the last, the Rosh, the Soif Tevas of Tzadik Katoma Yifrach in Tilim Tzadik Beis, the Soif Tevas are Koira. That he is getting up to Tchis Mason, but he's thousands of years jumping up and down and saying, Moshe Amis Vesarasa Amis. He's not, he's not doing the trampoline. So, in other words, yeah, you get a chance to fix up your last reincarnation, but you there's always there's always free will, of course. Part of Hashem's perfection is that He doesn't create robots, because He what, He would have nothing out of being in a relationship with the robots, like being in a relationship with Himself. That's not a relationship; it's nonsense. So, human beings have to have free will. So we get a chance. Your life is on schedule so that you get an opportunity to fix it up, your past life. But you still have the free will whether you choose to take the opportunity or not. <coughs> so the Mitzri, of course, didn't, didn't p take the opportunity. What's fascinating about this little piece of information is they look like such a normal, regular scene in Mitzrayim. 
a mitzri, but it's not. There's a hashkocha protest, a protoprotest, that in that moment, pinked in that nanosecond, Mashabenu comes out. This is the first scene that meets his eye, decides to take action, and it's just the soul of his ex-brother who he has to kill back. He must kill him back. I'm sure he looked like every other mitzri. And the story got reported in the newspaper. If there was such a thing as the Mitzri Times, I don't know. And then got re- reported, uh, Prince, Jew Prince, raised in Paris Palace, saved by Paris' daughter, uh, kills Egyptian. Gets into a fit of rage and kills Egyptian. Some say it's because he wanted to defend a fellow Jew and escapes as fugitive. His uh, whereabouts are currently unknown, I imagine. But it wasn't simple. There's Ashkacha Protus, Protus, So that's really where we're going with the B&B principle. That B&B principle says that since you didn't create your life, every molecule of life that lands up at your doorstep is there for you in order for you to achieve something. So that's one piece of history. Another piece of history we have is um, Yaakov Avinu. This I found in uh, the book Walking with Rabbi Miller, Rabbi Victor Miller, page 165. Fascinating piece of information. Um, that He brings the name of Rabbi Moshe Weintraub, who, based on Kabbalistic sources, that um, why Bechlal did Yaakov Avinu have to go down to Lovan? So we know that um, there are sparks of Kedusha, sparks of holiness, scattered all over the world. And it's one of the mission statements at Jobs of Eden that they have to land up. Where there's Coca-Cola, there's Jews. And where there isn't, the Jews will bring it to them. <laughs> Wherever you go, like when there's Coca-Cola, there's Chabad. But the, one of the reasons why we are globetrotting is because we need to pick up scattered sparks of Kedusha that are just in all the wrong places. So there were some sparks of Kedusha holiness by Lavan, for whatever reason, and Yaakovina had to go pick them up. And one of the ways how he picked it up, besides working for him so many years, is by marrying his two daughters. And one day he says to his wives, okay, time to go, I'm done. I finished with my sparks kedusha. I finished my mission statement. You can be sure I won't be here one more one more minute than I have to, one minute more than I have to. And he said, He said, "I saw the face of your father, and it's not anymore. The face is not anymore. Face. So now we're going. Now, what exactly does it mean? How do faces become no faces? So." It means the commentators explained that he, Yaakov, that when Yaakovino came home that day, Lovon, his father-in-law, was not smiling to him, and he took that as an absolute confirmation that he's done. Mission is over. Why is a fascinating piece of information that in order to smile, a certain level of kedusha has to be present. Look at that power of a smile. That's a very huge, big eye-opener. The power of a smile, the source of a smile, what a smile reveals about a person. And obviously, I guess till then, Lovon was still smiling to his son-in-law as much as he didn't like him, as much as he kept on, you know, exploiting him and, and actually cheating him on and on and on for 14 years in many different ways. And then he saw that his father-in-law is no more smiling to him, so he said, forget it. There isn't even one spark of Kedusha left in my father-in-law. I am done, and I am leaving. And pick himself up, he did. So his indicator and his sign that there are no sparks of Kedusha left love on is because he wasn't smiling to him anymore. So what does that have to do with that topic? Within context, it means that Yaakovino was on the schedule of his soul why he has to land up by Lovin. 
Yes, so the way Hashem orchestrated it, that he had no choice, he had to escape his brother, Esau, who wants to kill him. And his mother revealed that to him because she had Ruach HaKodesh. But why do you have to go just to Lavan? Could go to any part of the world. Because that's, that's the, was the schedule of his soul. He has to go pick up the sparks of Kedusha, captured and stuck by Lavan. Another piece of um, Jewish history we have is Rus. The Al-Sheikh in Megillus Rus says that Rus was a reincarnation of Lloyd's oldest daughter. The Pasuk says, Vatavoy, Balot. She came to Boyaz, Balot. Balot we translate as quietly. But the Ariza says, Balot. With a, it means two things. Number one, she was Lloyd, meaning she was his daughter. And the other one was Balot in the Schus of Lloyd. The word Lloyd means quietly. And Lloyd had a Schus that when he knew very well that when Avram told the border control people at Canaan, that about his wife, Sarai, she's my sister, and he told her, please tell them, and Lloyd knew very well she wasn't sister, she was his wife, but he kept quiet, and that brought him under the schos, that at the end of the day, he is the ancestor of David Melech Yisrael, It's not bad. My mother once told me that we are descended from David Melech. I said, hello, Zaydi Lloyd. Hello, Zadi Eglon Melech Moyev. How are you today? Very nice hijas, no? <laughs> it's just the way you look at it. <laughs> but the fact of life is that they had some merit. So, Rus was the Lloyd's oldest daughter. Reincarnated. That's right. That's right. That's right, but in uh, but she had a spark of the soul of Lloyd's yeah, oldest okay. daughter. Right, true, true. Yeah, true. Right, right. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thank, thanks so much. Right. Now that my kids are married, I'm not worried about my yichas anymore. <laughs> We're only obsessed about our yichas till the shidduchim, right? Um. So. And so, as a matter of fact, talking about free will, really, the Al Sheikh says that Elimelech was killed, was, had to die, was killed for the fact that he left Eretz Yisrael, and for the double sin, actually, one that he left Eretz Yisrael, and the other one that he abandoned his people in their time of need. That's why he and his thing. So the Al Sheikh says that really, Nomi also was part of it, so she also would have had to be killed. But because she had pure intentions, she went very reluctantly, only because she thought she's being a good wife, going along with her husband's plans, even they are ridiculous beyond, plus, plus. And she was pure-hearted, and she had every intention, after her husband and her sons were nifted, she had every intention under the sun to return to Beis Lachem Yehuda, even though she knows very well she's returning to her own degradation, to her own devastating humiliation. These people here don't want to know of her. All they know is what she abandoned them in their time of need. No way of knowing how she'll ever support herself, to her own poverty, to her own social life, being totally, totally demolished and degraded, if, yeah, if not more. But because she had every intention to right the wrong that she could, if she will be given the opportunity, Shem gave her the opportunity to right the wrong by staying alive. Because she stayed alive, she was able to be a powerful influence on Rus, her daughter-in-law. And through that, Rus was able to achieve her tikkun and become Imoshel Malchus, David Malchus Royal So in the end, Norma gets the credit for her good intentions with her free will to right the wrong. Don't know who she was at Gilgalov, but I guess she had her own stuff to take care of. But, and has her free will achieved that, despite the terrible, terrible tragedies that, that life met, met, met out to her. She, she hung gum in there. Well done. Serious. So, we're seeing again how every single molecule of life, every single part of life, is 
saturated with all the vitamins it needs to get you to the right place. There's a fascinating Chassam Soifa on the word. In Bechokoisai Telechu, in the Sati Kishmechem Be'itom, in which translates, in Bechokoisai Telechu, Hashem says, if you will walk in my statutes, in the Sati Kishmechem Be'itom, I'll give you the rain in its right time. So Chassam Soifa asks, usually Hashem doesn't promise us reward. In the Torah, very rarely do we get reward. It's, we, we are Mamini B'nai Maminim, that the world of reward is going to be endless in Olam And here outright, it says, If you walk in my statement, I'll give you rain, I'll give you money, Geshem, Gashmius, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you bounty, I'll give you affluence. It's really outright reward, something we're all after. It says, why is there a departure from the norm here? That Hashem promised us money for keeping mitzvahs. So Rashi says on the word it means because like a general category if you walk in my statutes where 613 huge categories and then millions of subdivided details well what's it's vague what, what, what does it mean if you're orthodox okay I'm orthodox I'm modern orthodox great okay I'm conservative okay I mean what does it mean so he said means um, to to um, Torah, that we should, you should delve in Torah, you should, uh, so you should work hard in Torah. So, he says, Sam Sofi says a fascinating thing. How do you learn Torah? You should talk in Torah. One of the, th- the obligations, the biblical obligations, the Torah obligates us, that what we should use our mouth for day and night is to talk in Torah. Such an extent that Chavz Chaim even paskins, la halacha, practically, that if a person speaks Lashon Hora, he's even violating the Dibaratabom. You're wasting your words and your breath when you shouldn't be speaking Dibaratabom. Lashon Hora is definitely not Dibaratabom. He puts it as one of the categories or one of the violations of what happens when you talk Lashon Hora. So that's what it's meant for. Speech is meant only for they should use it for Divrei Torah. So Divrei Torah also means Divrei be nice to people, not to lie, all the categories from the Chavz Chaim and Shmir Soloshan of how all the categories of forbidden speech are also Torah Digger speech. So he says a very fascinating thing. He says that Hashem is not promising reward, he's just talking about the natural order of life, the natural cycle of life. What's the na- When a person speaks, he opens his mouth to speak, a person emits from his mouth water vapor, a mist, a very fine, imperceptible mist. But if I would put a mirror in front of my mouth now, it would come out a little bit cloudy, it would come out a little bit because it's a fine mist coming out of your mouth. What happens? The mist goes into the atmosphere and the atmosphere gets saturated with my words and everybody's words. And what happens after a while? The atmosphere goes up, you know, into up up into the I don't know, the stratosphere until it lands up, becomes a cloud. That's that's the stuff of clouds. It's water vapor rising from the earth, from everything put together, from the Ocean mist and from anything moist and also people's words. Eventually, your words land in the cloud. Not in the cloud, in the computer. Maybe that's where the computer got it from. Land in the iCloud. It lands in the cloud. And in the end, it contributes to the moist. And in the end, go in the end, again, ends up being rain. So, if you'll speak Torah, words of Torah, Hashem promises, I will give you the kind of rain that will rain the produce, that when you will eat that fruit and vegetables and food, it will be good for your stomach, you'll be healthy, and will not cause you indigestion. 
And he says, sometimes people get indigestion because they're eating the food that was rained by people's horrible words. And he says, and what if you're talking good words, but the people around you, or people in the world in general, can't control everybody's world, 7 billion people, and all the rains are coming as a, as a mixture of everybody's words. He said, then Hashem will make that those bad words, the rain caused by those bad words, will rain the rainforest in the Amazon or wherever there's rainforest that do not produce fruit-bearing trees. And then people won't suffer indigestion from the bad words that were said from people's bad speech. And he says um, that there's a hashkacha protis or prote proteus, says the Heilig Samsoifa, no less. On the product that you pick up, it was rained by a certain drop of rain from a mist from somebody's mouth, sometimes you literally end up eating your own words. That's what he says. That's fascinating. You end up eating your own words. And so he says, it's not that the Torah is promising you a far-off reward. The Torah is promising you, it'll be the right rain in the right time to the right person in the right place in the right match. So that's when you speak Divrei Torah and Divrei Chizok and Divrei Muna like this, Shir. We are also contributing to healthy digestion for ourselves and for the whole world. We are literally manufacturing words that will ma in the end manufacture food that will land in our own mouth. Isn't that fascinating? It says that's why it says Ain Odom Miskaim Elaba Hevel Pian Ravan. The world only exists from the mist of the mouth that is coming from children who didn't sin yet and they're learning Torah and they're screaming Aleph Bais Gimel Dalat. We have no idea how good delicious fruits they're giving us. Luscious, delicious, healthy, organic, couldn't be healthier fruits and vegetables. So even the product, the cookies that you picked up in the grocery, they all look the same. All the Ostrakis cookies all look the same, all packed, all the same day. The milk that you pick up, everything that you pick up, it's a hashkocha protest why it landed in your hand that will eventually you'll eat it. That's pretty wild stuff end up eating your own words. I once I once had I always think about this. I was once in a in a shoe store. My kids were little, Schwartz shoe store. A woman came in and she imagined that I had pushed before her. Remember those days where you had to say, I'm last? Yeah. Oh they still exist? Oh my kids are married Brahsha. And uh and this woman imagined that I pushed in front of her and my kids were little and they were crying it was five o'clock in the afternoon you know what where kids should be five o'clock in the afternoon bed bath and beyond <laughs> so um anyway she screamed at me in public she screamed at me i had some students there and they were like looking at me and i thought you know what i'm not making a scene i said okay you go a minute later i felt very bad for her a minute later, her teenage daughter walked in. The first person she saw was me. And she was excited to see me. And she came over to say hello. I had no idea who she was. Then she turned around to her mother and she said, Mommy, this is Robertson Weiss who came out on our Shabbaton. I had just been in Baltimore on a Shabbaton. And uh, I was glad that the daughter wasn't there a minute earlier. But I thought to myself, oh, she is eating her own word. <laughs> so um, we see here's a fascinating psakalacha, a modern-day contemporary from Rabchaim Kanievsky. It's in this book, What If? It's the first volume. And this book, What If? is questions that were asked by Rav of Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein. 
he's the Rav Ramat Al-Khanan. He's Rav Chaim Kanievsky's brother-in-law, which makes him Rav Eliash's son-in-law. And um, it's a fascinating story. I have to share it with you. It's called The Right Place at the Right Time. It's on page 111. So somebody, Mr. Gold, was a successful businessman. He left Yeshiva a long time ago, but he maintained set times for learning at the beginning and the end of each day. One day, whilst he was learning a certain Gomorrah, um, a fundraiser came to ask him for money for the Yeshiva collector. And uh, this person decided, okay, he's going to use up the opportunity, and he asked him to to the Gomorrah. So although this fundraiser was a Tamt Chochem, he hadn't seen this piece of Gomorrah for a while, so he didn't really know the, the answer. But, and he apologized, and the, this person gave him a generous donation. As he was, the collector was leaving his home, he met a fellow collector from a different Moises, and he said, you know what, Reb Shimon, I was just with Mr. Gold. He's struggling with this Gomorrah. I think that if you are going to give him the answer, you're going to get a much better donation. So the other was... Very, thanked him very much for the information. He went to a local Bismedish and he plumbed the depths on that piece of the Gomorrah, knocks on Mr. Gold's door, and Mr. Gold says, oh, you know, I'm struggling with this piece of Gomorrah. Would you know the answer? And of course, he gave him the most, you know, clearest answer. He had just finished learning it. Mr. Gold was so blown that off the top of his head, you can ask him anything, his encyclopedic breadth and depth of knowledge, that he doubled his donation and he was just so out of respect for that he's such a talented chacham. Okay. So Rebshim was thrilled, accepted the check, but then his conscience started bothering him. Was that morally, ethically right? He got tipped off. And after all, he did fool him into misleading him into thinking that this person knows everything under the sun. He could just throw anything at him at random and look how he answers him. So he also felt guilty because the Shochanarach says that what does it mean to fool your friend, and it's forbidden from the Torah, that if you are about to open a barrel of wine and your friend walks in and you pretend as if you're opening in his honor, you are anyway going to open it. You pretend you're opening in his honor, that's called that you're fooling your friend. You're not allowed to do that. Shame doesn't like you to do that. Midvashakatirachakasham wants us to be honest. and But however, the halacha is that if you were just want to continue your routine, what you anyway intended to do, and nothing to do with your friend, and your friend misinterprets it by imagining that you opened in his own, that's his problem, it's not your problem. But here he deliberately went and, you know, created a scenario like as if he knows everything, when really he was tipped off. He started feeling guilty, and uh, he went to ask, and Rav Chaim Kanievsky ruled that there is absolutely no deception in it. He said, this is called Hashkacha Protis, pure Siata Deshmaya. He said that he's supporting a story with a ruling that, uh, with a story that happened to Rabbi Yitzchak Khan Inspector. He was traveling to accept a rabbinical position and the wagon driver got tired and he stopped at an interest. Rabbi Yitzchak Khan didn't want to rest, but he's got no choice. He's dependent on the wagon driver. So he stuck at the inn and he, Rabbi Tzachana, wanted to learn. So he asked the, the innkeeper if he has any safer. And the innkeeper said he doesn't have anything. He only has a siddur. But the siddur happened to have a commentary of Derech HaChaim. Okay. So, well, he's not going to sit there and waste time, Rabbi Tzachana. So he studied it backwards and forwards for the next few hours. Everything that there was there. And whatever he said there. The next day, he arrives to his destination, and pinked a question arose concerning Kriyasa um, Torah. The exact question where Yitzchak Hanan had studied for a few hours, and that siddur, what the parish Derech Chaim had brought in that siddur. So Yitzchak Hanan passed me exactly like he read yesterday, and finally they said, you know what? One of the people then in shul who were debating said, you know what? Let's bring Siddha Derech HaChaim. Let's see how he passed For some reason, that's what they trusted. They saw it and they said, Wow, Paskin, just like this person, he's the biggest Hamd Chocham, and they hired him on the spot. So, what happened? Um, subsequently, when Revitzka Kachan traveled to a different pulpit, he chanced upon a particular Toysfus. 
The following day when he arrived, he found the Talmud Chacham of the city debating exactly that Toysfus. And he resolved the dispute based on that he knew. He knew that Toysfus. He just studied it the day before. It's Siata Deshmaya. So Rabbi Chaim Konevsky said, this is not trickery and there's no obligation to reveal that information was just learned recently. Only if one receives honor for something that he doesn't know, while others assume he does know it, must reveal that the honor is undeserved. But here, Rabbi Shimon was a Talmud Chochem. Even he wouldn't be able to answer Mr. Gold's question had he not recently seen the Gemara, but Hashem saw to it that he should hear about it before visiting Mr. Gold because that was his Siata Deshmaya. And I'll add to that, there's a posuk in uh, Kehelis that says, Shlach lach mukhal pnei hamoyim, kiberoi v'yomim tibtseeno. That's Kehelis yod aleph aleph, which we translate as, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it in many days, in future days. So, api it means, do someone a favor, because you never know when you'll need a favor back. You know, and we just saw you eat your own words sometimes. And basically, we are, anybody who's lived a certain amount of time knows that uh, we end up collecting our own favors back, right? Have you had the experience? Yeah? I've had it. I've had it one time too many. So, this I'll peep shot. But there's, um, the some uh, Sofer says, I saw this in Sefer, expand upon the Sefer from my uncle, Naftullah Halberstam. It's called Divin Naftali, that um, he builds on the fact that the highest form of tzedakah is that you give um, tzedakah anonymously. That's Helchus Matnas Anayim, Rambam Paskins. That there are seven levels of tzedakah, the most preferred way of giving tzedakah. And the most elevated preferred way of giving a tzedakah is you give it to, to someone you don't know to who. This is for tzedakah. What the Chassam Sofer says is, why is it the most elevated way? Because actually, there's a reason why your money has to land by that person. And you don't know who that person is. Some you owe that person money from a last lifetime. Or you owe that person money even from this lifetime, but you're not aware of it for whatever reason. Things are going on behind your back. So if you give the money anonymously, why is it the highest form of tzedakah? Because it could achieve exactly what your soul needs. So it says that, Shlach lach When you're standing at one end of the river and you throw your bread, you have no idea who's getting on the other end. But there's a hashkocha protest who's getting your vendor at the end. Why is it brought in the moshal? Why does Shlomo Melech bring the moshal of Mayim water? Because between Aish and Mayim, Aish disconnects and Mayim connects. Mayim is always water, is the grand connector of life. And Aish destroys, fire destroys, and water connects. Like when you want to bake something, you have to use something moist, water, to connect. And fire destroys, fire burns. Cast your bread upon the water, because the water will connect your bread, your money, your energy, your efforts, your thoughts, your personality, your neshama, your soul, your spark of holiness, your who you are, will get connected to the person on the other end. You don't know who it is. But Hashem already matches you up. Hashem already orchestrates it. Shem is the great big organizer. Make sure everyone gets a good. Right? That's that's why Shem created uh, social media for. So uh, the person, whoever needs to hear this Torah, will hear it. And when will they hear it? In the right time, in the right place. And uh, sometimes I myself end up listening to my own Torahs that I said many years ago. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And I end up getting chizok. Sometimes, sometimes I do myself a favor. 
Yours truly. So, what do you say? That means in many days, you'll find it in many days. Alpipshat, it means that the favor that you did will be returned to you in some form or another. No, it uh, physically means in those days, and when people somebody throws f- bread, you never know which hungry person will make use of it. But the way life works, we are all very familiar that we do someone favors or we meet somebody in some place that we never think we're ever going to have to use them, have to ever again. And we never know. I mean, anybody who's married off any kids can tell you that how it, the shidduch came about, or well, anybody who's gotten married, and, uh, shidduch came about in very un- usually very unlikely circumstances. It's Hashem orchestrating it. So, actually, all this points back to the um, fact that the Medrash uh, Tanchoma here, Pashas Pekodeh, and I brought the source inside, because this is so astounding that people actually argue with me. So I want to show them the source material. So they see that it says here that before a person is born, it goes through the whole dramatic pre-life experience, life before life. And it says that before a person is born, Hashem is goizer, he decrees upon a person, <coughs> kol kairosov, everything that is going to happen to a person. That all gets decreed in life before life. What did you think about it? Did you know about it? The answer is yes. The Gemara Masata Rosh Hashanah, Daf Yod Aleph, Ahmad Aleph, says that before a person uh, was created in his body form, in his soul, he was shown everything that he's going to go through, and he was created, and he was asked, would you like to be created in order to go, th- what? That's a good question. That's an excellent question. Um Created against your will, we said uh, last week, refers to the fact that since you never existed at one point, said your birthday, you had to be created. So that's what it means against your will. Against your will means that before you had a will. Human beings that don't exist can't have a will to exist because they don't exist. And since they don't exist, they can't have a will to exist. And since they don't exist, they also cannot know the benefits of being alive. So therefore, they wouldn't choose it. Against your will means before you ever existed. That's one pshat. Another pshat of against your will is what we're describing right now. That first, all souls that were destined to arrive on planet Earth and have birthdays were created in Sheish Meberashas, the six days of creation, on Friday. And they were all stored in Adam, the first man. He was storing, he was the grand storehouse of all future individual souls. We all lived in him together as sparks, individual sparks of souls. And... But in our... Before we were put into Adam... We were souls, and where would we live? We lived Tachas Kisar Kavod. That's what the Medrash says. We lived Tachas under Hashem's throne of glory. And at that point, Hashem showed us each individual. He showed us our the greatness that we could achieve were we to be successful and be willing to go into a body and try our luck. 
and each one each soul was asked would you like to be created and was shown and at that point Hashem showed to him each soul had its own mission statement what it must achieve see Hashem created thousands and millions of billions of jobs Hashem had a very specific plan in mind for what he wants the end product of planet earth to look like Hashem gave humanity 6,000 years to get their act together from the start to the finish and the finish line is and that day everyone will proclaim that there's only one God and everybody in the end, everybody, Jews, non-Jews, everybody will scream and yell that there's only one God. And with who and whose God is he? Alekei Yisrael is the Jew, he's the, the God of the Jewish nation, God of the Eden. Every soul gets their own specific opportunity individual unique mission statement to bring humanity to that realization in their own way and we were shown our jobs and we came down willingly and happily so when does free will actually start it's before you were created because you have to figure do you want to come down do you want to accept and a certain a certain level you see at that point no, willingly at that point. At that point, yeah. At that point, at that point, we were we was had such clarity that the best thing in the world for us, the greatest glory we could ever hope for, the greatest love we could ever hope for, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest accomplishment, the greatest everlasting glory we could ever dream of, is being a contributor to Hashem's eternal plan forever and ever and ever. I mean, being coming partners of Hashem creating, being part of the, the the cosmos of reality. I mean, how cool is that that on an average day we so one shot of born against the will is after we agree to all that and we were excited about it, we came down willingly and happily and everything was great. In the last last minute when Hashem was ready to put put the soul into the body and send it packing the last wave suddenly we chickened out suddenly we we smelled we intuitively got wind of the fact that yikes you know something like the parachuter who gets psyched up for years and years and years and then he's told jump it's a psychological fact that most parachuters can't jump they need something to give them a grand whack a grand kick from behind just jump just go in the last minute, we got wind of it, and we kind of got wind of it. You know what? This is not might not be such fun every single day. Not every hour is going to be so great. Maybe I'm, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure I'll be successful. We get we chicken out in the last minute. We get free. We freak out in the last minute. At that point, why am you going? At that point, Hashem said, "You're going. You agreed. You agreed. You've got the koyachus." Go for it. You can do it. You can do it. Go for it. So, but the fact of life is that the reason that people survive, could survive, have it within them to survive enormous difficulties is because of their pre-life tour around their own life, what it's going to look like, and they have strength from it. They, somewhere deep, deep, deep down in the subconscious, a person is away. It's like when you go sometimes to be Menachem over someone, and the Avelim are in a much calmer state than the Menachem. And you walk and you say, How are they doing this? I can have this, I can have this, do this. And you can't even, you're not capable of thinking the thought, you're not capable of sustaining the thought. Some things in life are too horrific. That they be, it's the world of the unthinkable. You're not capable of continuing that thought. Because the thought alone, you think, I'm finished. I, I'm dead already at the thought. Never mind going through the experience. But the truth is, you're right. You would not survive the experience because it wasn't meant for you. And they are surviving the experience because it was meant for them. 
and they are drawing off the energy of their pre-life information that is very powerful. As I said last time, there's only one thing humanity suffers from, amnesia, memory loss. Otherwise, we're doing very well. We're doing fine. We have all the strength and all the energy and all the hope and all the courage and all the resourcefulness and all the intelligence and all the love and everything we need to make life blissful for ourselves and the people around us and those that we love. It's just the free will comes in when the second Hashem decides to give us this grand memory loss. It's the second we get born. We forget everything. We don't even know how to, don't even know if it's day or night. And we, we, we can't recover that intelligence. I never, I never recovered from the trauma of, of the, the intelligence I lost at birth. I'm still traumatized. I'm still spending my life trying to make good on it. So that all of life is trying to recover that knowledge. So to conclude, every single part of life is here where we go with the right people, in the right place, in the right time, in the right minute, with the right people, everything is great. And we're, we're proceeding on our schedule very, very nicely. So, once again, from a B&B perspective, since we couldn't orchestrate or create or synchronize or synthesize who should be, who and what should be with us and who should say what, we can't control any part of our life, we trust 100% that the great big orchestrator is conducting the symphony and bringing to our life experience even <coughs> what we eat is made out of the molecules that have somehow, somehow connected with us. And in the end, we're all one big happy family. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.